Let me repeat one line from that beautiful, beautiful passage from John's Gospel. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replies, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. This morning's reading is is really about identity. It's about who we are. It's about who Jesus is. The, the Jews who challenge him again, who are you? And so this is about Jesus, but it is about us. I want to just again put the talk this morning in context. Um, officially, according to our lectionary, this is the fourth Sunday in Easter. And for those of you perhaps who, who don't come from an Anglican background, uh, you might find that somewhat curious that we're in a season of Easter, Easter tide, as it's called. You know, we're very good at doing events. And, and in fact, Easter, we, we're pretty good at preparing for the event as well. We have all of Lent where we were called to pray and to perhaps to fast and perhaps to go a little deeper in our faith, faith uh, to be dedicated in, in some of our disciplines. And we prepared for the event that was Easter. Good Friday, Easter, and boom, it's over, just like that. We do the same for Christmas, don't we? Months of preparation, and then boom, it's over. But you know, Easter is a, is a special time. And this season, which is, really finds itself between the two, the two upper rooms, Easter tide, in a, in a sense, begins with that upper room with Jesus and his disciples as he prepares them, as, he, uh, as they eat together the Last Supper, and he prepares them for the cross that lies ahead. And the season ends in another upper room as those same disciples who have witnessed Jesus on the cross and who have witnessed his, uh, Jesus resurrected gather in prayer and in expectation, and God pours himself out upon them at Pentecost. It's a fantastic season because there is so much for us to reflect on. And we do no justice if we rush on after Easter and we kind of rush on to the next thing. It is good for us to pause and for us to reflect exactly what Easter has meant to us. Because the resurrection should change everything. And the reminder of it should change everything in our lives as individuals, but also in the corporate life, the life of us together as, as a church. What would happen in our lives if we went through each day with kind of a, if you like, a sixth sense awareness of the resurrection? What would we attempt if we truly believed that the power that raised Jesus from the dead was available to us. Because that's the truth of the gospel. That's what it says. That the power of the resurrection is ours. What difference would it make if we knew for sure that death has been defeated through Christ? Death, where is your sting? Because that too is the truth of the resurrection. The death no longer has a hold over us. Yes, these mortal bodies will one day wear out. But death 
has no hold on us who believe in Jesus Christ. It should change everything. How many of us, and I put my hand up, how many of us, at least part of our lives, are shaped by our fears? Not by the things that we, we hope for, but by the things that we dread. How many of us acknowledged this morning as we came to that worship the things, the burdens that we carry? And sometimes those burdens are unavoidable. There's no judgment. But if our burdens begin to define us, are we really living a resurrection life? In the first letter of Peter, in the first chapter, in verse 3, powerful line, says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's ours, a new birth into a living hope. And so that's why I say that this morning, I want us to be talking about identity. Who are we? Who have we been born to be? And do we have a hope that is not just an empty hope or an academic hope, but a living hope, a hope that touches every aspect of our lives? and shapes us for God's purposes. Peter says that we are new cre creatures with a new driving force, with new values and new priorities, or we should be. The resurrection brings about radical change, or it should. It certainly did in Jesus, and it should for us too. And so over the coming weeks uh, between now and Pentecost, I want us to, to touch on, as, as a church, but of course it touches us as individuals too, some of the radical things that we, we have as a result of resurrection, the radical implications of the resurrection. We have, maybe above all else, a radical message of love, demonstrated like nothing else is Jesus' love for us the risen Jesus. We have also radically changed relationships, a radically changed relationship with God as a result of the resurrection, a radically changed relationship with each other, and a radically changed relationship with the world as Christians. We're also filled with a radical new power, for some of us, power perhaps is a, has dirty connotations because in our human experience, perhaps so often, power is abused. And those who seek power seek it for their own purposes. But for us as the church, we have been given a power beyond imagination, a power to be used for good, a power to extend God's kingdom, a power to bring people into relationship with this God who loves them a power to change the world. And this morning, I want us just to look quite briefly at that radical change in identity that is ours in Jesus. As Peter wrote, new birth into a living hope. What I'm going to say now is quite hard 
And this morning, I have to say that 7 a.m., the wheels fell off, and I don't know whether it was the devil having a go, and maybe this message is important, or maybe it was God trying to intervene and say, don't make a fool of yourself. But nevertheless, I'm going to share the message uh, again. I want to start by by saying something, and I'm paraphrasing now, but but, but there's a saying that the goldfish is is the last to, to realize that he's swimming in water. For the goldfish living in a, in a goldfish bowl, the water is just so much of, of what is normal to the goldfish that the goldfish factors it out, doesn't even recognize that there is water. It is just the norm. I guess you could say the same thing about the air that we breathe. We, we're not conscious of breathing. It just is something that we, we do. And so the goldfish sometimes has to be reminded of the water in which he lives. Some of you were present on Freedom Day, and we were privileged to hear Freedom, uh, to, to hear Africa Mflope speaking. And I really do hope that what he said on that Saturday and then again on the Sunday uh, is on the podcast, because I would recommend those of you who didn't hear him would go and have a listen to that. He spoke about, about our context here in South Africa. And he spoke about the clash of cultures. And so let me say immediately, right from the very beginning, that what I'm about to say is is very much a a generalization. And I'm also going to say to you that I risk standing on many toes this morning because culture is something that is so personal to us and we are so protective about our culture that quite often something that may be viewed as slightly critical, uh, we take to heart and we, we get upset. So please let me, let me say a big, at the beginning that if I stand on your toes, I don't intend to, but I might. And I'm going to say what I'm going to say anyway, because I believe that it's important. Now, Africa Mflope spoke about culture, and, and these are the, the terms that he used. And he said that in South Africa, we have a clash between essentially white culture and essentially black culture. And he said something which kind of stuck in my mind and made me go back and reflect, and that's why I'm I'm sharing these things with you. Because he said, in white culture, society is shaped by the individual. Listen to that again. Society is shaped by the individual. In black culture, he said, the individual is shaped by society. Can you see that those are two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world? One, the individual is placed as the cornerstone of an understanding of the way that the world works. And the other, the group is what defines our identity. And the individual is just a part of a group identity. Those are fundamentally different things. Again, clearly an oversimplification. Let me go a little bit further. I want to talk, first of all, and please bear in mind, I am a white male. Everything that I say is filtered through the lenses that I wear as a white male. White culture, when Africa Mflope says this, I think he's talking essentially about a culture that finds its origin in the history and the philosophy of Europe. It's a European-centered kind of culture. 
And for those of us who are white, most of us will identify with that. Our European-centered culture draws a lot of its, its shape from a period known as the Enlightenment. Let me quote from one of the, the most famous philosophers. He was much more than that too, but René Descartes. He lived in the 1600s, and he made a statement. He said, I think, therefore I am. It was a revolutionary thing for him to say, and it kind of summed up where the philosophical thoughts were going in that time. It challenged the status quo. I think, therefore I am. What he's doing in saying that is that philosophically, the individual is at the center of, of society. His own capacity to think and to reason was the only thing that René Descartes could be certain of. He couldn't be certain of what other people thought or their realities. He couldn't be certain of the institutions and structures of society. The one thing that he was certain of was of his own, in fact, his own doubts and his ability to reason. And therefore, he said that statement. I think, therefore, I know that I exist. And therefore, I am the cornerstone, the building block, the most basic building block of this society. Now, that individualism that really stemmed from that period in, in history has many positives. We're quite quick to knock rampant individualism, and I'll do that in a moment. But many positive things came from that idea. One of the most fundamental is that it led to the idea of human rights, that every human being is entitled to a set of fundamental rights. There's by right of birth. That there are many great fundamental freedoms that for many of us, we take them as being self-evident, but stem again from that same simple idea that a human being as an individual is important. Flowing out of that, is the idea of liberal democracy. The idea that the healthiest society that you can imagine is one in which individuals making wise decisions make choices. The rule of law. Education as the cornerstone of that same healthy society. Because clearly, if you are favoring individuals making decisions, then individuals need to be informed. They need to be wise in the decisions they make. They need to understand the environment in which they live. And therefore, education is absolutely fundamental. Freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of choice, the free market. Again, the free market comes in for a great battering these days as a... Uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a way of, of exercising kind of rampant selfishness. And yet, remember I have a Bachelor of Commerce as well, so filter through that, through that filter too. The free market is the only proven economic system proven to raise people out of poverty. 
the only economic system that has a track record. No others. And if you don't believe me, ask 500 million Chinese. And so the individual shapes society, and society is simply the collective choice of the individuals that comprise it. Okay, that's kind of in a nutshell. Let me talk about black culture, and I apologize because this will be an oversimplification, and who am I to, to in any way speak about black culture? But let me say that in black culture, as Africa and Flope defines it, membership of the group is more important than one's individual identity. Doesn't mean that individual identity is not important, but that but it is maybe more important to be part of a group. And one of the, the most beautiful ideas that comes out of this worldview is the idea of Ubuntu. The idea at its simplified version is that it takes a village to raise a child. So we're not saying that the child is not important, but that that child is shaped by the collective experience of the whole community. And it's a beautiful image. It's beautiful. And I think the positives that come out of that group sense of identity is that there is a potential for far greater cohesiveness in society, certainly far greater inclusion. There is a, a greater community-mindedness, a far greater awareness of the needs of those who live around you, of your neighbors. There is an ownership of, of both the the joys and the sorrows of the community in which you live. Those of us who have a white approach to death will know that our funerals are over, chip-chop, done, finished, and we try and forget about it. But in a more communal, death is something that is shared. It's not rushed through. It's dealt with in a, in a sensitive, in a compassionate, and as I say, a shared way. Experiences and resources are shared, that there is a respect for those who are elders, who are wise in the community. And at best, a collective view on society is far more collaborative. It's far less cutthroat. There's a far greater attempt at consensus at its best. Let me go as quickly as I can. Let me talk about some of the negatives. The negative consequences of white culture. Margaret Thatcher, I think it was, who, who said that in her time, society is dead. For Margaret Thatcher, there was no such thing as society. It was just a group of individuals all making decisions. I spoke about rampant individualism. And if we are honest and we reflect those of us who come from white culture, we see around us the effects of, of self-centeredness of a selfish approach to life. And let me repeat again that, that so many of us, it's hard to see the water that we swim in, that we so grow up in this kind of environment and kind of society that places emphasis on individual achievement, that our worth is measured by how we achieve, uh, the number of certificates we have on the wall, the bank balance that we have, those are our measures of wealth. Those are how we find our identities, our sense of achievement. 
and with it comes a, a rampant materialism. And I fear that as we look around us, not just in this country, but in, in uh, North America and in, and in Europe, we see a society which is far less socially aware, far more interested in number one than in our neighbors. And how many of us, if we're honest, retreat behind the drawbridges that our, our affluence provides? That we're able to draw up the drawbridge if we want to, and that we don't need to engage with need around us. We also live in a very competitive society, where it's winner takes it all, and there is less cohesion. And if I can just turn to philosophy very quickly, out of this idea of the individual being at the heart of everything has sprung, through a couple of steps, postmodernism, which is the most illogically ridiculous philosophy you can possibly imagine, which states that the individual is so important that the individual even gets to judge what is true, that there is no truth that is not your truth. So somebody else's truth is their truth, my truth is my truth, and you can't argue with my truth, and I can't argue with your truth, because I am the arbiter of what is true. Completely illogical. And yet that has sprung from our incredibly individualistic society. There are negative consequences, too, in black culture. Sometimes that subsuming of the individual into the group is, is not healthy. The idea that conformity is more important than standing up and being counted. The idea that uniformity is a, is a high value. And sometimes out of that comes a lack of innovation. There's certainly a lack of competition and the benefits that come out of that. There can be a top-down approach. There can be a temptation to factionalism hard definitions of who I am and the group I belong to mean that I am us and you are you. Factionalism can rear its head. I don't want to say anything more than that because I don't want to sound as though I'm being just blindly critical. I want to tell you one story about my experience down at the College of the Transfiguration, which is the Anglican Theological College, and I was the lone whitey there. And so I very much was aware of who I was, and I was very much aware of, of everybody else's culture. And, and I was theologically quite different from the rest of the, of this, of the uh, students. And I felt the need to, to challenge. And so the lecturer would say something. We didn't open a Bible until we were more than three weeks into the course, and, and so I felt the need to mention that, and, and a number of other things. And at every point, there was silence around me. And eventually one of my black brothers came to me and said, Brother, we believe what you believe too, but you know it's not worth rocking the boat. And sure, it meant that there was peace and harmony, but it came at the expense of the ideas and the engagement that we could have had with the seeking out after out of truth or better a better thing. So maybe maybe there are some downsides. Forgive me if I have offended you. Forgive me if I have stood on, on your toes. This morning, as I encourage us, as the scriptures do, for us to be aware of our identities, I want to challenge us 
to see that, yes, we have culture. We have culture, be it black, white, European, green, orange, whatever the way you want to describe it. But that we are called to another culture. We are called to another identity. Africa Mshlope put it, I think, very well. And he spoke about black and white culture, and then he spoke about Christian culture. Where do we find our true identity? Do we find it in our divisive human culture? Or do we find it in a new culture that is neither black nor white nor green, but it is the culture that we find by being brothers and sisters in Christ. That culture is one which is beautiful. Not that our own born cultures are not beautiful, but our Christian culture honors both of those things. Isn't it beautiful that God makes us in His image as beautiful individuals? He uniquely shapes us. He uniquely gifts us. Isn't it wonderful and beautiful that salvation is based on our decisions as individuals? That God says that He knows us by name, that He knew us when we were still in our mother's wombs. He knows us with such intimacy as uniquely created individuals. And yet the moment that we give our lives to Christ, we become part of the even more beautiful group. We become part of the body of Christ with each of our unique gifts, not for our own glorification, not to be competitive, but for us to build each other up, to build up the body of Christ so that God's glory can be witnessed to the world. Let me say very, very quickly, this is part of a series, so I'm going to stop in a second. I don't need to finish what I, what I wanted to say because I'll continue next time for those of you who return. But I, but I want to... I want to come back to our gospel reading, that beautiful reading uh, about Jesus in the temple. And then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's, Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are, in, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus responds, he answers, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. You see, those folk who had come to Jesus and asked for his identity, it wasn't that Jesus hadn't told them. It wasn't that his works hadn't witnessed to who he was. It was because he was not what they had expected him to be. He was not what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be a Messiah. There's no coincidence it's the festival of the dedication. Those of you who know what that's all about, it was a, a celebration of, the, of, the, of Judas Maccabeus who had, who had driven out the, the invaders. And so it was pertinent. They were wanting to know, who are you? Are you the new Messiah? Are you another Judas Maccabeus who's going to be a political leader, who's going to be a general? He was not what they wanted. And so Jesus makes that fundamental statement. 
My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You see, dear friends, today, I want you to be certain that you, could, that you are part of that new, wonderful family that is initiated in Jesus Christ. And that all that you have to do, as Jesus says, is to listen to his voice and to follow him. It's all that you have to do. And for those of us who come from a culture that says that you've got to perform, that, you want to say something, Rob? Sure. That you've got to perform, that you've got to be worthy, that you've got to earn your right, that you've got to have head knowledge, that you've got to have a dog collar, that you've got to be old, that you've got to be wise, that you've got all these things. Before you qualify to be part of Jesus' family, Jesus says, rubbish, nonsense. All you need to do is to hear my voice and to follow me, and you are part of my flock, and I will be your shepherd. You see, your new identity is based on the person to whom you belong, and you belong to Jesus. And so as we respond to the world, we are no longer black or white, we are Christians. And we respond out of the knowledge of our new identity and the hope and the security that we find in Him. One of the other beautiful lines that Jesus speaks is, uh, He says, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's such a beautiful and powerful and freeing and liberating statement because it means that we are free to be who we are. It means that we are free to express the occasional doubt that we might have. It means that we are free even when we have done something that is wrong, to repent and to return to Jesus. Because our belonging to Him is not based on us and what we do, but on Jesus and what He has done. And for those of us who come this day, and I, I loved our worship this morning, those of us who came with burdens and with worries and concerns, the message that I hope that you will take from Jesus is that whatever it is, no one and nothing can snatch you out of the hand of the shepherd. You are his now and always. I want to read to you from the other reading that was set for this day in our lectionary. It comes from the book of Revelation in chapter 7, and I'm going to conclude on this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a beautiful picture of a time to come. It's a picture of heaven. But I think that the Bible also reveals that, that heaven doesn't begin at death. That eternal life begins from the moment that we give our lives to the shepherd. And so there is an element of, of that vision that is for us here and now. It is a vision for all souls. Listen to it again. 
And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, that every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the land. I want that to be the vision that we carry forward here at All Souls. That it doesn't matter what our human culture is. It doesn't matter where we've come from. But our new definition, our new identity finds itself in the security and in the hope and the life that we find in Jesus Christ. That we can stand here in worship of Him with different languages, looking different, from different backgrounds, from different classes, whatever it may be. And that we are united in one thing. That we are held in the palm of the hand of the shepherd. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we have a hope that transcends everything else. And so this morning, that's my challenge. That's my encouragement. That Jesus loves us. The resurrected Jesus draws us into a new identity. The resurrected Jesus loves us and defends us, that he gives us eternal life. And it is only in that knowledge, in that security, that we will have any hope of going out and turning this world upside down. That's our call, not as divided people, but as a family as the people of God, as the sheep who belong to the shepherd, now and for all time. Amen.